Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. This episode of Tourpreneur is sponsored by Fair Harbor. Fair Harbor fuels the experiences of the travel industry with the most comprehensive online reservation system available for tours, activities, and attractions. Visit fairharbor.com to see why over 15,000 businesses worldwide trust Fair Harbor to better serve their customers and increase online bookings. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of Tourpreneur. This is the podcast where we flatten the learning curve for tour operators and travel professionals around the world. Today, we're going to talk about social justice. And even more so, we're going to share how Mary and Stefan of Blue Fern Travel in DC built more than just a tour company. And we're going to learn how we can also build a business that does good in our communities. Before we cross over to Mary and Stefan, let me share with you a little bit more about Blue Fern Travel. Blue Fern Travel was based on a love for the district and inspiration from years of traveling all over the world, including Australia, Africa, South America, and Europe. Throughout these adventures, a few things became clear, they write. The most memorable highlights of these trips started with getting to know the locals and their stories and tasting their foods. That's what truly makes any area special and unique. Upon returning, they also rediscovered their passion for the city and its distinct neighborhoods and cuisines and wanted to share their experiences with others. That is the vision behind Blue Fern Travel, to share the best of the district's neighborhoods and their delicious food with everyone. Blue Fern Travel offers fork tours and fizz tours, food and drink. These experiences also made the team passionate about giving back. That's why they created the one-for-one food tour model where a portion of each ticket goes to feed a district resident in need for a day through their partnership with Bread for the City. I tackled this interview a different way from some of the others, where we look at the past, how they got set up, the present, and then future plans. And on this one, what we've done is we've deconstructed, if you will, the journey of Blue Fern Travel. We've looked at the problems. What problems did Mary and Stefan identify in their community? Where did they feel they could have the the biggest impact? We then look at the solution. Okay, we know what the problems are. How can we create a business that will help support our community? And then we look at strategy. How did they build the tours, design the tours? What business skills did they have to learn? The importance of business plans, how they tried virtual tours and food boxes, and it wasn't for them. There is a lot to unpack in this episode. 
And this is gold for those of you, and I think it's a the vast majority of us that want to do good in our communities with our tour and experiences business. So welcome on to the show, Mary and Stefan. Hi, Hi. thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm really excited about this conversation. I have to say a big thank you to Cat Pear for introducing us and introducing me to your story about what you guys are doing down in DC because you're a tour business that you want to be more than a tour business. And we're going to go right back to your whole raison d'etre, if you will, um, in terms of you said on your, you wrote on your website, when we opened Blue Fern Travel over five years ago, we committed to being more than just a tour company. We understood the power of the tourist dollar and its role in the reproduction of inequities throughout our region. What did you mean by that exactly? Washington, D.C. has a very unique tourism scene compared to many cities because it is the nation's capital. So you have, you know, 99% of the people that come to visit, they really come to coming to hear a national story and they completely miss the city itself, you know? So in that sense, it's really unlike any other city you may go visit where you go expecting to learn about the people who live there and their history and their contributions to the world. Uh, so on one level, this was about kind of restoring DC's place and the people in its past uh, to their sort of rightful position in kind of their contribution locally as well as to the nation. Uh, but there's also an economic component because uh, a lot of the money that comes into the Washington, D.C. tourism industry, uh, which is the second largest industry in the city after the federal government, most of that money isn't really working its way into all the small businesses and locally owned businesses throughout the city. And so we wanted to create a business that would make sure that, you know, the people of the city really benefit from all the people that are coming to visit. Yeah, that's very laudable. I know myself that, you know, I've been to D.C. a handful of times and it's always those national landmarks and all those wonderful museums you've had. But the last time I was there, I was there for IPW, I think it was, yeah, so a couple of years back. And a good friend of mine dragged me out to a, dragged, but uh, invited me out to a neighborhood that I'd never been to before and it was off the beaten track. And it was definitely a little bit, if I'd been on my own, I'd be a little bit scared. Just because, you know, I'm, I'm a white British guy, right? <laughs> uh, but it was great. We had a fun night, great food, good beers. I forget the name of the place. I should email and ask. But, you know, they're the kind of neighborhoods that I guess most tourists who come into D.C. just don't venture into. Yeah, I think it can feel kind of overwhelming. You don't know what the best places are, where to go first, how to navigate it if you're not used to metros. Um, and so we just really wanted to make all those things much more accessible to folks. All the neighborhoods are amazing. They all have their own unique personalities. And then, of course, all the local restaurant and business owners that we like to feature too. You know, definitely things you don't want to miss, you know, when you come to D.C. Absolutely. And that's a big, big part of your story. What issues were you seeing locally that you wanted to support and promote? So not just the case of, hey, tourists, there's other parts of D.C., but you were seeing you know, inequality you've written here, racial issues. You know, maybe you can talk through some of those that are close to your heart and things that you wanted to campaign on, as it were. Well, Washington, D.C. right now is a very rapidly growing city. And with that growth, there's been tons of investment in development. And the way that development has been happening for a large part uh, has really not been controlled by the communities who are already here, essentially. 
Uh, and so one of the big issues is, you know, that term people hear more and more about gentrification, which you can blink your eye and a neighborhood in D.C. will look different than it did a second before. Mm-hmm. It's really astounding how quickly these changes are taking place. And they're happening so fast that the communities who have historically lived in the district aren't able to adapt. You know, there's a history of a poor education system, you know, going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, so a lot of the residents who grew up here, they were not given the tools needed to succeed in the Washington, D.C. of today. And so in addition to helping to support these local businesses and their staff, we also wanted to make sure we support uh, other people who are really struggling to kind of maintain their their D.C. identity, Um, you know, multi-generational Washingtonians who are being left behind. And so that led us to a partnership with a really fabulous organization called Bread for the City. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that, Mary? Yeah, so we um, basically created uh, DC's first and only uh, one-for-one food tour. And so what that means is a portion of every ticket goes to Bread for the City, and we feed someone in need for a full day, so three meals. Um, so since our inception, we've done donated over 25,000 meals, um, which we're super proud of and really excited for, you know, tourism to pick up again and us to be able to kind of continue that effort and that impact in the city. How many thousand meals was that? Sorry. 25. Wow. 25,000. Yeah. Well done. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. We're very proud of that. Absolutely. And how did you get involved with Bread for the City? What did that look like in the early days? Um, you know, we were trying to make the impact almost like micro direct or as direct as possible. And so our very first neighborhood was actually U Street in the Black Broadway history. Uh, and actually, Bread for the City is is pretty much in that neighborhood mm-hmm. or, or very close to there as we were doing the tour route. Um, certain iterations of our tour even like had us walking right past there so we could kind of point it out and show people. Um, but that, that probably was one of the biggest drivers. And then as we looked more into, you know, maybe them versus a different nonprofit, we were just very motivated by uh, their approach to how they help folks. Uh, they started out over 50 years ago as a food bank. And over time, they've just added different services, all of which are driven by uh, their kind of clients' needs. So they've added, you know, dental services, vision, legal uh, mental uh, health. Yeah, just kind of all of the above. And they really try to make it, they really put themselves in their client's shoes and think about like, you know, if someone were to try to go get all of these services, even if they were all kind of, you know, available, they might have to take a bus and it could take them all day to get all over the city to do that. And so they're literally all in the same building and just making things as accessible as possible for the, the folks in need. And, and, you know, we're just very motivated by that. So it's been a really fun partnership. And you know, now we're like at the level of like corporate sponsor, or at least we were in 2019, I don't yeah. know, <laughs> 2020. So we're going to help them with their gala this year and help them with a virtual event for their uh, Bread for the City gala. And so it's just been kind of blossoming over time. It's been a really, you know, meaningful thing for us and really fun to kind of watch it grow. Sure. So these are some of the problems that you wanted to help with in your community. How did you get started as a business? How did you go about funding it at the start? Well, originally we wanted to start a hostel. That was kind of our first iteration. And that really came from, we traveled a lot in our 20s. We are not trust fund children. <laughs> so, you know, we we did go to a lot of hostels around the world and there just really weren't very many, if 
I mean, just a small handful in DC. And so we wanted to maybe do that kind of approach to make it more accessible for folks in that way. And basically I spent two or three years like building a business plan for this. I don't have an MBA, so it took me a while to kind of put all the pieces together. Um, But it became really obvious that you have to own the building, make it viable. And despite lots of connections being made throughout that process, we did not have connections to investors that we would need to be able to do that. But the good news is we found an amazing uh, lawyer who was also my business mentor. And he kind of, you know, made me realize I was actually very excited about the tours that I kept talking about that we're going to have in the hospital. So that was obviously a much lower like barrier to entry financially. So literally we took out like a $5,000 credit card and just kind of went for it, um, which seemed much more feasible than, than that building. <laughs> so. Yeah. This is very familiar. So many of our our guests don't have MBAs and are not trust fund kids and are using their savings or a credit card to get started. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was the initial reaction? So you've got the business idea, you've got your mission, and then you, of course, had to go and speak to people in your community about this. What was the initial reaction? It's interesting because we had a whole host of different reactions depending on who we spoke to. You know, some people understood right away what we were trying to do. Um, and others never understood and still don't understand. And then others kind of came along. Um, yeah. As we first started reaching out to restaurants, we noticed pretty quickly that when we were speaking directly to owners, it was easier for the owners of the business to understand what we were trying to bring, not just to their business, but also to the neighborhoods they were in, uh, where a lot of times we were speaking to management staff of these businesses they were seeing it as extra work for them that they weren't really going to see much out of. So we learned pretty quickly that kind of going, you know, straight to the owner of these businesses and explaining what we were doing, how we were going to be working with them and how we were going to be supporting not only their staff, but their communities. You know, that's really kind of our ticket to making the connection to be able to build our partnerships. That's one of the challenges I hear a great deal from food tourpreneurs, especially those who want to start out is, hey, I want these vendors on my tour, but they won't work with me. And I know that I want to produce future roundtables on this because there's a lot of practical knowledge from the experience you've had. Did you find that it was easier for you maybe because you were able to say, hey, we want to bring people in here to eat or drink and learn local history, but we also want to do good. You know, We want to give a cut of our profits to bread for the city. Do you think that that opened doors quicker for you or is it still the struggle of getting the companies to work with you on your tours? I mean, I think it was a combination. I think that definitely helped because it showed we were committed to the community. I also think, you know, the other pieces of our approach are that we pay full price for the tasting. We don't ask for a discount at all, um, including taxes, all of the above, because that's something that right when you walk in the door and you say what you're here to do, most of them expect you to ask for free food or a discount. And that's when they start to lose interest. And so when we could say, no, we absolutely want to pay for everything. And we also want to tip your servers. We, we don't want to leave anybody out. You know, all of that kind of changed the narrative. And then they start to be like, okay, well, this is at least worth giving a chance to, you know, maybe we'll see how it goes at least. And that's something that evolved a little bit over time. When we first started, because kind of the standard food tour model is to seek those discounts from vendors, we did start to do that. But over time, we realized you know, that it wasn't really fair to to the vendors. It kind of came across as if we were devaluing what they were doing. We really had a lot of respect for them. Uh, so that was a big part of it. 
And then the other thing is we've noticed that, you know, a lot of time these arrangements get made with the business owners or the general manager, but the staff themselves who are helping out our tour groups are just kind of expected to, you know, bring the plates and run the food and aren't always compensated for that work. And in the restaurant industry, especially here in the United States, where tips are such a critical part of the income that servers take home, we really made it quite explicit that we're not just paying for the food. We want to make sure we're tipping the servers at least 20% who are helping us out. And that's also been really helpful for the business because once you have the staff at that level on board and they understand and they know that it's going to be the easiest tip they ever make because it's always the same, you know, like we get a really good system in place and that they are being compensated for that. And that's one thing that's allowed us to build great working relationships, not with the owners or the managers, but with the staff, you know, and the managers don't even have to think about it. Uh, when we come in, all the staff, we know them, they know us, they know the drill. Go right for it. Yep. Bringing out the food, bringing out the waters, whatever it and is. And it's building those relationships and that community. It's, you know, it has to be within the business ourselves, not just something we're trying to do as a business, but something we're doing within the business. So the question that comes to mind is if you were paying full price for the food, 20% tips, that obviously affects how much you charge for the tours, correct? Um, but then I'm thinking, did you have competition in those areas when you launched your tours? I think that was one of the, you know, it all kind of falls together. But I think that was one of the things that we learned over time. Like basically we raised our prices. We had to, it just wouldn't make sense. And I think because um, we kind of, you know, right when you're starting out, you're obviously not like as confident. And as we kind of grew in our confidence with our approach and kind of realized different pieces that needed to be strengthened, um, we also grew more confident to raise the price. Um, and so if you look, I assume we're probably the most expensive food tour in DC, but people pay it because, you know, they like that value and, and they want to feel like they're giving back. So, I mean, that's just like kind of for us the added value that we're able to offer. Um, but I think it was a little intimidating at first, kind of, we thought we were going to compete on price. And then we realized like, we just can't, and we don't really want to. It's a matter of competing on on quality of the experience. Mm -hmm. um, and we both have backgrounds in anthropology. Um, I also have a background in archaeology. And so we take more of a holistic cultural approach to the development of the whole tour experience. It's not just about going and tasting food. It's almost like the food is uh, the hook or the carrot on the stick to get people to come. But once they're here, like we have a whole world of things to tell you, you have no idea about. Um, and it's about using our platform to really tell these critical stories of diverse people throughout the history of our city that made it what it is. We realized as we started to be reviewed and stuff that a lot of people really value that, you know, they came thinking they were getting a food tour experience. But what they left with was a lot more than that. And that is another thing that allowed us to raise our prices is because we were giving more than a lot of our competitors were giving. And so charging for that additional service, essentially, people receive through the tour, um, not to mention the fact that when they walk away, they know that for every person that goes on the tour, somebody's eating for a day. That's three meals. You know, So they know that they're not only helping the businesses by going on the tour, but they're really helping people at every level throughout the community. And people value that. So that's another thing that people will pay a premium for, essentially, knowing that 
their money is going to support a lot of people, you know, not just the tour guide, essentially, that's walking them around town. And I want to get into the marketing of that a little later. Uh, but what I was struck with on your website is you published most of our guests are wealthy white travelers from across the nation and throughout our region. This platform has provided an opportunity to teach people the stories of important Washingtonians who have played a significant role in the generation's long struggle for freedom. Many of the familiar names of historical black leaders like Frederick Douglass, Mary Church Terrell, Anna Julia Cooper, and Mary McLeod Bethune. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing those names wrong, by the way. That was perfect, actually. Well done. Maybe I'll audition for a tour guide role. But no, but I know Frederick Douglass, but the others I don't. I'll be honest, I'm pretty ignorant about it. So, Yeah, I mean, that's, again, one of the things that we felt like we could provide because there's not a lot of Black-owned tour businesses in D.C. The ones that do operate, they target African-American clientele. And that's great. Those stories should be told to those communities. But just the nature of racial dynamics in our society as white tour operators, you know, we're attracting a majority white clientele. It gave us an opportunity to make sure that these stories, just like you, many of those names people don't know. You know, you'd be surprised the number of people that don't know Frederick Douglass, even if they're from a place where Frederick Douglass lived for a significant portion of his life. Uh, So we saw the importance of making people aware that what they think they know about American history is is really significantly lacking. There's one historical figure named Carter G. Woodson, who was, he's considered the father of Black history. He was a dean at Howard University, which is a historically Black college and university in the district. And he's the person that started Negro History Week, which became Black History Month. And one of the things that he did not plan for was he saw, of course, the importance of telling all of these stories as one, that there really is no distinct separate Black history of America, white history of America, Native history, Latinx. It's really an integrated story. And Negro History Week was supposed to be just a way to get people to start talking about the way histories are integrated. But what it's turned into over the decades is a segregation of the way we talk about history. And so that's one of the things we're trying to move away from is talking about the Black experience in isolation from the white experience or the Latinx experience and making sure that we understand not only are these people living at the same time, but many of them are interacting with each other. Intellectually, they're having influences on one another. They're learning from each other's mistakes and successes. And just trying to make sure that when they walk away, people have a better understanding that there is a lot of their history they don't understand. And I'll let Mary's sort of main goal, I'll let you sort of take it away. But oh, I mean, I always just like to add that I just really want people to walk away with curiosity to just continue to look those things up, whether it's historical figures that you might not you know, know that well, or even like your local community. Like when you go home to wherever your city is you know, go meet those business owners, go kind of understand their lives and where they're coming from and their perspectives. Because I think, you know, for me, that's just a way that we can all build community as a whole better. And I think we're all kind of lacking in that right now. Have you received any pushback for your approach, either from people who want to book with you or any of the local community? One place that we have seen pushback a little bit is in our reviews from people that say they paid to go on a food tour. 
And what they got was a, a history lesson, essentially. But the vast majority of people say, I paid for a food tour and I got so much more. We also don't have any competitors of color in the food tour space. So we haven't really had to confront the idea of us sort of taking profits away from people of color who are trying to tell these stories. Uh, so that's another um, thing so that we've been able to skirt around. Uh, but for the most part, it's really been supported. The majority of the vendors we work with are women or people of color, and they really see the value in what we're doing and, and have appreciated uh, the fact that we are telling these stories beyond just that surface level you might get from looking at an about page on a website. I'm really trying to make these historical connections, not just of DC's history, but how each of these businesses kind of fits into that history and how these neighborhoods have changed over time. We've had a few African-American guests on the tour that I've like personally given that have been very moved by our content and by what we're talking about um, and just are really happy to see that those stories are being told. And they didn't necessarily expect to hear those stories. And some of them maybe even had ancestors that like relate to these stories. And I mean, so for us, it's, you know, just very impactful. We've even had black guests. Mary's been pulled aside and they've said, you know, so like, what do you tell the white people on the tour? Uh, <laughs> You're like, it, you tell it's them like the we're doing, we're doing like, something what? right. I think. Fantastic. I want to get into the strategy a little bit here because I know many of our listeners are probably out thinking, yeah, I need to do more about this with my own tour business. Or we have a lot of what I call tourpreneurs in waiting that listen to our show, that they're building their own tour businesses, and they also share similar views to you. So let me ask you, at the very start of this, if you said that you, you used the $5,000 on your credit card to get started, what other business skills did you have to learn? So you just said you were an archaeologist, right? So you don't have an MBA, not really from that business school side. What did you have to learn at the very start? Uh, well, I haven't had to learn any of those business skills <laughs> because I am married to Mary Collins. So <laughs> I'll let her take that answer. <laughs> Mary, what did you have to learn? Wow. Uh, I will say I don't have an MBA, but I do have an MPA, Master's in Public Administration. Okay. And so when we started the business, it, I guess technically was like a side hustle for about five years. And basically my background is strategic planning and budgeting. So good news, I did not have to learn those things. I mean, yeah, I think I did obviously have to learn how to build the business plan. It's kind of always evolving. I think marketing for me is is even now like still the biggest hurdle. Like I try very hard to learn as much as I can. It's always changing. Um, we do have help with that. Thank goodness, more experts. But yeah, I mean, I think just just kind of understanding like the cash flow and you know all the taxes and all the those big structural things that keep things in place. I'm very uh, detail oriented in that way, so I was happy to learn it. And I probably wouldn't be able to sleep if I didn't learn it. It's nothing I could like personally, you know, kind of overlook. I, we've had some folks like approach us about thinking about starting their own company or you know, arguably a hostel or something like that. And that's what I always tell people is like, you have to start answering those types of questions because those are going to be the things that are like, will become your Achilles heel if you don't, you know, take the time to invest or are able to like hire someone that really knows what they're doing. And so that's definitely, I think the thing that I'm kind of constantly like keeping up with and, and making sure that all the ducks are in a yeah. row, right? 
I think it's fair to say this is episode 143. The vast majority of tourpreneurs I speak to may have a basic business plan, but most of us don't have the P&L statement. I, I would hazard a guess that most of us don't know how much profit we're making. And I'm not saying that to be demeaning in, in any way, but for most of us, they're boring subjects, right? That's like the homework from school. We want to design a tour. We want to lead tours. We want to get involved with the marketing. We want to meet people in our community. And it's something I'm fast learning is the importance of having that business plan and keeping on top of the finances. You know, you, you were saying, Mary, that during COVID, that saved your business. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. We were actually doing amazing in January and February of 2020, um, having like by far our best year. And one thing I've just become very disciplined about, you know, up until that point, and obviously still, is just not spending any money until we've actually earned it. So it can be sitting there and I have a spreadsheet of like, you know, this is what we brought in and this is the tours we did. And I know exactly which money goes where, and I'm not spending any of this because we haven't actually given those tours. And so we were actually able to give, unfortunately, quite a few full refunds and not go in the red at all because it was all kind of set aside exactly where it should be. Um, and in addition, similarly, like all our tax documents were caught up, everything's current. And that was the reason, or that, I guess that was why we were able to apply for the, uh, like all those SBA loans and things. Literally the day it opened up, I applied because everything was already ready and I could just like cut and paste or whatever we're doing. Um, and yeah, I just can't say enough for like <laughs> making sure you know, I will just make a small plug and we can, you know, uh, there's a book called Profit First that really helps you kind of you know, separate things out, think about your profit margin as you're going, don't let it be an afterthought or a surprise at the end. And it really walks you through how to do it. And even, you know, if you go on their website, they can find you accountants that use this method. But this is one that I'm so happy someone turned me on to. And I would recommend that absolutely for anybody. Brilliant. Do they offer any courses or anything? Because I'm struggling to find really affordable courses for tour operators that can go and study, you know, business plans and P&Ls and, and taxes and so forth. I don't even know if it exists. I'm looking. <laughs> yeah, well, we've talked about that. That is definitely one of my strengths. I don't know any courses off the top of my head because I, you know, went to school for it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think Profit First is a great book to start with. And then, like I said, there is a website. I don't know that they offer courses, mm -hmm. but I do know they have like accountants that they can kind of pair you up with. Um, actually, turn my brother on to that. Nice. <laughs> He's a Profit First accountant now. So it's pretty neat, though. It's a really smart system that they've kind of put together and just very, very clear. You, you kind of just know where you stand at all yeah. times. I'm working on it. I'm asking around for people who may, and certainly anyone listening to the show, if you know of a good course, that's affordable because I know there's five grand courses out there and 10 grand courses, and none of us have got money for that. But basic business plan, kind of like an MBA for tour operators. Got a quick message from one of our sponsors, and then we'll get right back to today's show. Stay tuned. Your search for the industry's best online reservation system is over. Fair Harbor enables thousands of tour and activity businesses across the globe with streamlined experiences that convert website visitors into paying customers to strategically increase online bookings and overall revenue. Their highly customizable cloud-based booking solutions are designed to be easy for you and your customers. Fair Harbor eases every aspect of your day-to-day -day operations through one easy-to-use dashboard. 
Options like custom seat maps and online seat selection can all be tailored to your unique needs, while capacity limits and contactless mobile ticket scanning help you maintain the latest safety protocols. All of this alongside Fair Harbor's best-in-class 24-7 support. Visit fairharbor.com to see why over 15,000 tour, activity, and attraction businesses choose Fair Harbor. So the next question then, the sexy stuff, right? How did you go about designing your tours? Yeah, I mean, that's something we're always going back and tweaking and playing with. Mary's actually been in a course right now on storytelling, which has already begun to improve the way we share information, I guess I should say, on the tours. But what we really try to do is kind of look at each neighborhood's history and where it is today. and we use that to help us in selecting what tour stops, what businesses we're going to go to, as well as what food tastings we're going to have. Because when you go to larger cities, you can go and eat food from all over the world. You know, uh, you don't have to come to D.C. to eat, you know, Ethiopian food, which is something we're especially known for. You can get Ethiopian food in most large cities across the world today, but it's identifying the significance of the Ethiopian community in the city and the different waves of immigration to the area. And when you start to understand that, uh, understand some of the ethnic and cultural identities of the people who are coming from Ethiopia, which is an extremely diverse community, it allows us to start to get to a little bit of a deeper level when we take people to an Ethiopian restaurant. And when we talk about, you know, the way Ethiopian cuisine developed literally over thousands of years, And we can point to these different items on the dish and make those connections. Going back to the domestication of tep, which is the most significant grain in Ethiopian cuisine. It's really about, one, just having a really good understanding of each community, but then trying to find the things that will help us tell those stories. Uh, So we really think of it as a five-sensory experience. You know, there's been a lot of studies about how the more senses that are engaged the easier it is for people to remember. So that's another thing we feel like helps us have a longer-term impact. It's not just walking and seeing and listening, but it's the smell, it's the touch, it's the taste. And bringing all of those components in will help trigger these memories and bring these experiences with people as they leave the city and and go on to the rest of their lives. It's really sad. At time of recording, uh, a Facebook memory came up. It was from a year ago, a food tour that I enjoyed in Montreal. And, you know, I saw the photographs and, you know, the memories come flooding back. And, you know, this, this is what we do as tourpreneurs. We create memories. And, okay, and it's sad right now because that was a year ago. I went on my last, uh, last food tour. I went on another tour two weeks after that, but a history tour. That's what we're in the business of doing is, is creating memories and experiences that we'll talk about for many years to come. And now I'm really hungry hearing about your Ethiopian uh, <laughs> <laughs> food. Well, you. next time you're in D.C., give us a call. Oh, I definitely will. Don't, don't worry about it. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is something that most tour operators struggle with, is how did you go about then picking an online booking platform? So I had mentioned I built the business plan for the hostel. By the time I decided we were going to do food tours, I had no interest in starting all over for like, yeah. you know, multiple years for all I knew. But we actually took the core food tour pros out of Chicago. They actually had a lot to do with our first choice, which was Easy Ticks. 
And then basically we were approached by Fair Harbor probably about a year into it. And uh, after looking at their features and things like that, just kind of for us, it, it made a lot of sense to switch over to them. What were some of the features that Fair Harbor had that EasyText didn't? Some of it was the interface with the customer. I just really appreciated how that looked on the website. It just felt very polished. I think too, their dashboard, I thought was a little more robust. Easy Takes was just a newer company at the time and Fair Harbor was a little more established. So they'd had time to build those integrations. Um, like I think they had a few more API connections at the time. I don't know that that's still the case. The feature that I love the most is that we work with Fair Harbor to do our website. So they pretty much like hold my hand and I get to tell them what I want it to look like. And then they build it out. And of course, I mean, they're, I feel like they're in the business of helping me sell tickets. And so in any capacity, they can do that, including making sure my website is good. And what's the best way they can do that? Build it themselves so that all the, you know, SEO tags and whatnot are lined up. Whereas like if it was on me, yeah. we hope, yeah. <laughs> we hope the tags are there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's things like that. I feel like they really think through what I'm going through and they try to make things as, as user friendly and kind of help me get to the next level as possible. I really feel like they're just such a strong partner, kind of how I look at it. I feel like that's how they look at their relationship with their core providers. So, And the website side of things, is that something they offer a standard or is that an additional service? When I took them up on it, it was standard. It might be a fee for it at this point. I really don't know. It was a couple of years ago when we started that. And I know they've had so much interest in that feature that they might have had to like start charging just because of their bandwidth, I guess. Um, but they've always been really great. Anytime I need to make like a change on it, I will say I do know how to do WordPress. I'm not an expert at all, but like I can go in and like edit the text or something like yeah. that, something basic. But if I need like a page built out for a new product or something, I mean, they're very fast. Like I can do it within a day or two, it'll be done. And it's great to just be able to send an email and say, hey, <laughs> yeah. this is what I need. Well, two days later. In the, interest, in the interest of transparency, Fair Harbor are sponsoring this month's episode of Torpreneur. Yeah, I'm very grateful <laughs> to that and thankful for their support because that's what keeps the show alive. But I want to make it clear that we had decided to interview you before Fair Harbor were, were sponsoring the show. I didn't know I was going to say Fair Harbor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So on that basis, let's have some fun. So just to show that this is a very transparent show. So Fair Harbor, like they are listening to this episode today. So what one feature would you like to see Fair Harbor bring in that will help your business? Or what frustrates you about using Fair Harbor? I'm going to give the unsexy answer. <laughs> I think I, I'm really happy with their reporting um, and all their reports and metrics. And that's definitely, you know, right in my wheelhouse. But if it was me, I would like, beef that up so that it's more user-friendly, maybe more tutorials on how to like get the most out of it, things like that. I mean, they could throw in a graph. That would just be amazing. Right now it's all numbers and I have to export it into Excel to get some graphs. I'll probably get a call later and they'll be like, we can totally do that right now. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> For me, the reporting side is, is a big deal. So I have to tell you, that's happened before on earlier episodes of the show where Fair Harbor reached out to people they've heard on the show and said, yeah, let, let's do something. So that, that's why I always like to ask it. So we move then from booking platforms to marketing. How did you go about marketing your tours? As I mentioned, we are always evolving that and always trying to learn about that. But I think, you know, we definitely, especially early on, did the approach of like TripAdvisor and buy a tour and 
and any of those third party, which still are helpful. And then I think the other thing, and we gave a shout out to Cat Pear, and I think we should continue to do that. She has just been a lifesaver. She really helped us kind of navigate the world of DMOs and DMCs and and just how to get involved with those folks. Uh, I don't know that I mean, for me, I think, and probably for a lot of folks that are thinking about starting a tour company, we wanted to build a tour and we wanted to like serve the food and do the thing. But like, you don't even realize how much of just like the tourism industry you don't understand until you're like in it. And then you're like, wait, what's a DMO? What is a DMC? And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, like there's so many ways and avenues that you really need to like invest in. Would you like to explain DMC for anyone who's listening who's like, wow? Right. Okay. So a DFC is a destination management company. So like one of the ones we have here is like CSI and how I always like to explain it is like, if all the dentists in America were coming to DC for a conference, a DMC would coordinate different tours. They coordinate hotel rooms, they coordinate the convention center. And so you want to be in with them so that when they're coordinating tours, you're not going to get every dentist on your tour, but you're going to get at least one good tour, maybe two, maybe three, who knows. But that's why you want those. And then obviously DMOs are like, you know, for us, it's Destination DC, the, you know, area tourism company or the DC Tourism Association and and things like that. I think understanding how to leverage those partnerships for us has become a really smart uh, way to market without having to use a lot of dollars. And engaging with them, you know, mm-hmm. so everybody will say you need to join these organizations, but just joining them, you know, it doesn't really do much for you. It's really mm-hmm. about engaging becoming an active participant Mm -hmm. and through that all of their staff really get to know you on a personal level your business those sorts of connections are really what allow them to help support us as a business Mm -hmm. and make sure that when they know a certain group is coming that we get in touch you know and so Mm -hmm. it's it's more than just being a member Uh, Mm -hmm. it's really about engagement with these organizations and being part of the local tourism community beyond just trying to stay in your wheelhouse and focus on your one tour and isolation of everything else. One good example for kind of how we market or one approach that we take all the time is, is really leveraging the community events that are out there. In DC, of course, the National Cherry Blossom Festival. And again, thank you, Kat Pear, for giving me this idea. But she got us basically connected with the festival and so over time, we basically offered tours throughout. Um, and so those will be on their website. But now we're starting to partner with them in a bigger way. And they have like cherry picks restaurants that we're working with. So this year we're doing the National Cherry Blossom Flavor Pass. And it's a booklet. And it does have discounts, but it's designed to get folks out into the community, trying new flavors and things like that. And especially right now, you know, we want to support our restaurants as much as possible. But kind of over time, like really understanding these different community events and using their advertising dollars to leverage what you can bring to the table and figuring out what are the best ways to work with them. Because we can never get in front of an audience that large, like on our own. Your decision to work with Cat Pair, so Cat is a marketing consultant. That was obviously a financial commitment, your site. How did that all come about? Very, yeah, very (laughs) organically. (laughs) Kat is amazing. Um, And honestly, she approached us. We went to our very first Destination DC, like happy hour event. And she, 
I mean, I think she might have even known exactly what I looked like and was looking for me. Like she found me at the event and was like, I'm so excited. You're a new food tour. I was like, I'm excited. And we just start and we just hit it off. Like, I mean, we're very good friends, I think, as well. And so, you know, it's very, very organic. But she was also willing to. I think this is something for probably new entrepreneurs. I pay her much more now than I did like in the first year. And so she was willing to kind of build out what she was able to offer us and kind of give us a few more hours every year as we grew. Um, and I think that's something any entrepreneur should be willing to at least ask that question if they have a service or a person that they want to kind of work with. I do frequently ask like, what's the lowest? <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I'll take fewer hours as well, yeah. but like, what's the lowest like we can get yeah. in and then we'll build it up later. Because you have such a strong grasp of the budget, uh, you know, you know exactly how much money you can put into something. And so you can, when you know, and you can just say, I can spend $300 a month on X. And you're talking to somebody and you say, okay, I have $300 a month right now. Like, what let's get started. Do? What can you do with that? And if it works, then you're going to have more money for it in the future. Because the whole point of working with Kat or anybody else is trying to increase business. And then as your business increases, you have more money to invest in more marketing uh, or to invest in a PR person or whatever it is. And then it just builds on itself slowly over time. You know, it's, sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and we think something's going to just like go gangbusters, you know, right off the bat, because we love the idea and we're so excited about it. But just kind of remembering that this is a marathon, you know, we're not in this for a few years, we're in this for a lifetime. And just, uh, you know, keep putting one foot in front of the other and, and building off of what you've done in the past. I admire you for it because it's one of those things you look at as a cost and say, okay, can we really afford to spend that? What I'm seeing out there is that there are thousands of marketing consultants and there's thousands of what I call empty suit gurus who just will promise you the earth and, and take your money and, and not deliver anything. And I, I've gone through this process myself. I'm at a stage now with tourpreneur that if I'm to make this a full-time living, I need to do more marketing. I need to reach more tour operators and I'm interviewing digital marketing agencies. And, and it's tough because I don't know what I don't know. Uh, I know to do my due diligence and obviously Cat Pair, not that this is an, an advert for Cat at all, but you know she has strong roots in DC. She worked at Bike and Roll. Um, so you knew that she knew her stuff. But what advice would you have for tourpreneurs who are listening to this episode and they're like, yeah, I need to hire a marketing consultant, but how do I know that this person's going to deliver? I mean, first do some research, right? Like look up, like what goals could I have? Like what makes sense as a goal for the website or for, you know, conversions or traffic? Like what are some benchmarks for whatever the, the thing is? And even, you know, educate yourself on what are the things out there that you can make goals of? Like, I mean, depends on where you're starting from. And then don't be afraid to set goals when you're like interviewing these people and kind of say, well, here's what I'm looking for. Like have, have a goal in mind, but that's where you can kind of get into the ROI kind of discussion. And so in six months, if you're able to bring that person on for six months or three months, you can look at like, this is the goal we set. Like you can talk through, I mean, maybe it wasn't a reasonable goal. We've definitely had that happen where we, you know, shoot for the stars. And then we're like, oh, that was way too high up, <laughs> you know, but but definitely know where you want to go. Don't just hire someone because you know it's something that needs to be improved. Like you need to know where do you want to take it. Going back to an earlier comment is this is why networking is so important. And you will find wherever you are that some tour operators just see themselves as cutthroat business people 
But you're also going to find a lot of tour operators that see the bigger picture. And by networking and finding people that have been in the industry a little longer than you, you know, they know, right? They've already had these same challenges. They've already probably found a bunch of people that do a really terrible job. So you want to know those people. Uh, but they're also going to have found people that do a good job. And so those networks are really critical for making the right connections and making sure that you're not going to be throwing your money away. Yeah. So during COVID, you launched virtual tours and food boxes. What was your experience with those initiatives? Being in full transparency, not that positive. I think, you know, that was something that I, it was a big lesson to learn just kind of where our traffic was coming from pre-COVID, it dropped off significantly. Like if you just looked at the website analytics. And so when we tried to do the boxes and the virtual tours, we just didn't really have like a very large audience to kind of put it in front of. Cause you know, we're trying, so we're trying to rebuild our local audience at this point um, and try to find ways to, to reach them. But I think that was probably the biggest reason they didn't really do very much. And, you know, for us, it was good. I think it almost served more as a distraction than yeah. much else. Like I spent a lot of time putting it together and still very proud of the actual product itself, but it just, it just didn't really move. And so, you know, you just have to be okay with saying like next, like let's <laughs> find the next thing. Let's do something else because this isn't working, you know? But at what point did you recognize it wasn't working and you're like, yeah, this isn't a pivot. This Cause you know, we were reading at the time, you know, you go to Milwaukee food tours Teresa was doing very well. Others, food tours that the lady and Angela are in Seattle. But at what point did you say, all right, this just isn't working here? I mean, we probably gave it roughly like six months with a few different iterations. We had one in July we did um, that focused on Black-owned businesses called the Black Box. And then we did a holiday one. We had a few kind of in between. The market boxes. The market boxes, yeah. Markets in the city. But yeah, I mean, roughly six months. And, and I really thought like, Kind of the holidays was my last big push. And I was like, if we don't do anything at the holidays, like that's that's just like a clear, like, all right, if you can't sell this at Christmas, I don't know when you're going to sell it. So, you know, unfortunately it didn't work. But when I look back on it, I mean, yes, it was a distraction, arguably in a good way, but it just didn't really fit the business that well for us. Like long-term, I would really love to find something. And I think actually this flavor pass is maybe going to be that for us. But something that, you know, you could carry on post-COVID that would still make sense and be a new revenue stream. And when I really wrap my head around doing that with those boxes, I mean, just the way the overhead is and things like that, and having to order all those things in advance and negotiate all the different purchases and all the pickups, and especially since we weren't seeing much traction, like putting in all that effort just did not make sense. And I just, you know, long-term, it's just not a business I want to be in, yeah. Fox-related. Fundamentally, so. it's a completely different business. Yes. And a lot of the people that were really successful, they had been around a little bit longer, and they also had better local networks mm -hmm. with the media, for example. Yeah. And so that's a lesson we've learned to take with us mm -hmm. is that that's one of our top priorities, working to make those media connections uh, more explicit working to engage local people more. So we launched a YouTube channel recently, for example, where Mary's been able to tell the story of some of the significant people in DC's history, you know, a lot of which the locals know and the locals really care about, you know, it's not so much the people coming from out of town, 
you know, and so it's those sorts of things that are starting to put us in a better position for the next global catastrophe. Uh, you know, just making sure that uh, we diversified our, you know, client base. Uh, not only are we supporting the local businesses, but we're supporting the local people by giving them things that they value. I want to pay you a big compliment for your honesty and transparency, because the same with virtual tours, there was this mad rush to everybody go build a virtual tour. And I saw a lot of bluster online, a lot of hype. And yet there were a handful of companies I'd heard of that were doing okay with virtual tours. But for the most part, it was another shiny object. But as you say, it was a distraction. It gave us something to work on during the, you know, the dark times of, of middle of last year. But thank you for your honesty here. And also the fact that you said that that's not a, the, the, the box business is not something you want to do. And I get it when we're scratching to make a living and we, we need to do something to put food on the table. But you're like, yeah, this is not what we want to be doing. We want to be leading tours. Um, I'm also pleased to see you've launched a YouTube channel. And I would recommend somebody who lives near you, Rob Patingalo of Trip Hacks DC. He was on episode 32 way back on Torpreneur. And that whole episode was about YouTube tips for tour operators. And uh, he's he's pretty modest, is Rob, but maybe uh, you need to drop him <laughs> an email after this and say, hey, let's have a virtual coffee. And, you know, have you got any pointers for us? And uh, he's very experienced on the YouTube side of things. And I'm sure he'd love to, to come on one of your food tours when you're up and running. Yeah, that would be great. Absolutely. So a question I have for you, uh, reading your bio, so you're obviously very busy with the business. You also have two children. So how do you achieve a work-life balance? Or do you achieve a work-life balance, I should ask? We, we share responsibilities, yeah. yeah. So, well, today we didn't know what we were going to so do because our son, who's two, woke up. Uh, so yeah, he was not feeling well today. So he's home. Luckily, since he's a little under the weather, he went down for his nap a little oh. early right before we started. We're so. not sure if both of us would be on this call. Sometimes you just get lucky, I guess. During these COVID times, kids and dogs are welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm surprised our dog has not paid us a yeah, visit. <laughs> but yeah, it's just communicating. I mean, we're a married couple that own a business together. Uh, you hear all those horror stories, of course, you know, but it's just all about communication. You know, Mary worked for the first four years of the business full time at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I was working on my Ph.D. and working at the National Park Service. Uh, and it's just about just trying to find that right balance. There's a lot of late nights after the kids go to bed where we're up working mm-hmm. on one of the many things we got to get done. But the main thing is just communicating, making sure you know, if Mary needs to be in the city doing a shoot for a new YouTube channel, that we plan that out and that it's not just Mary has to schedule her time. It's we have to figure out who's going to pick up the kids. How are they picking up the kids? How are we going to feed them dinner? You know, so it's just making sure that we think through all the things we really have to do and we work together to figure out how we get those things done. Over time, we've been able to hire some folks and we have a great director of operations. We obviously have Pat on our team, you know, accountants, et cetera. But, you know, I think I think being willing to go out and, and hire those folks, you know, to make sure things get done has just been invaluable. I think it can be kind of daunting when you think about bringing somebody on. But I guess for me, you know, first they're needed, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think just to think about it in a more flexible way, like we had a social media consultant work with us while 
I was still working at the VA. And then that was actually one of the things that helped me be able to quit my job is we had to let her go. And then I kind of took it over in-house, but just kind of realizing, I mean, you know, you just don't have to keep somebody on forever. Once you hire them, it's not just like indefinite employment, you know? And so you have to be willing to kind of grow your staff or even shrink it, uh, like as your family needs kind of require. So my final question for you is, what are your words of advice for entrepreneurs who are listening to you today? They're really inspired. They're like, yeah, we need to be doing more good for our communities. What words of advice would you have for our listeners? You know, really thinking through what impact you're having, right? Like, how how are you going to interact with your restaurant? How are you going to interact? I mean, assuming it's food tour or with with the larger community as a whole and just kind of literally going through like step-by-step step, the places you stop, you know, the way you run the business, do you hire local accountants or, you know, kind of farm it out farther away, you know, like kind of just thinking about it's literally every decision you make, like thinking about what the larger impact is, you know, kind of once you are in that habit, I guess, like, you know, it's just kind of how you do things, you know? So I don't, I don't think it needs to be particularly daunting. I think you just commit to doing it and you do it. <laughs> Get out in the community. Um, you know, what, if there's a particular issue or topic that you personally are passionate about, find those groups in your local area and get involved. And from there, you're going to start to see how you can use your business to help support the things that you care about. I love that. I love that advice. And that's also how you learn those really touching, critical stories about people who live in the communities you work in that nobody knows but deserve to be heard. And then you can help amplify those. It's not all about building the business. It's about being an active, engaged member of your community. Go talk to people, meet people running different organizations become members. The plus side of doing that is you'll learn what the actual needs are. You might think you know, you know, kind of problem or way to solve it. And then you go out and you find out that's actually not the problem. It's this other thing, you know? And so if you're truly passionate about whatever that issue is, you really want to hear from those folks, um, you know, and, and just not make those assumptions. But I love the advice you're giving because this should never be a box ticking exercise it shouldn't be okay i support black lives matter uh but you've really got to believe in it because this is part of your business it's what you it's what's going to get you out of bed in the morning to go and run your tours and experiences don't do it just to tick boxes because for me every right person thinking supports blm but there's a difference between yeah i support them to yeah this is gonna be part of my every day and i'm gonna live and breathe this using that as an example you know the black community is not a monolith and every city the black community face a host of different challenges and they're not the same in every place, you know? And so how can you know how best to support the black community where you live unless you, you know, go and talk with black people that are running organizations trying to help their communities? In a sense, it's a no brainer and it can be, you know, intimidating and awkward for white people that are not used to, you know, engaging with black activists, for example. But just be comfortable with that discomfort. You know, that's the thing that I think we've always loved about travel is that adrenaline from the discomfort a little bit, you know, of traveling to a place you don't know about. And you can get that in your own town if you just, you know, put yourself out there and, and let yourself feel it and be comfortable with the discomfort. 
marvelous on that i uh, thank you both very much for giving us some of your time especially as your 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 child is sick there and uh, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on and our listeners can find you at blueferntravel.com and i will add all the links to today's show notes at tourpreneur.com forward slash 43 thank you thank you very much it's been a blast Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.